0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. Right on. All right. I'm glad you guys are here. Me too. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yes, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Yes. All right, then. So, cool. Well, welcome. We are glad you guys are here. Uh, I think we all know by now that we are continuing through the series called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. Right? We got this week. Next, I think we have three more weeks. So, by the first weekend of June, we're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be in 1 John for I don't know how long. Uh, that's yet to be determined. Um, but yeah, so tonight, you know, will be determined by God, absolutely. Um, so tonight, we are continuing on through the book of Daniel. Uh, last week, we saw the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and how God is with us, even in the midst of trial, and that we can trust His sovereign will over my lives, or over our lives, and my life, too. Sorry about that. It must have been a typo in the notes. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I know some of you guys think, like, I'm always up on a soapbox about God's sovereignty. Um, And you're kind of right. Because the Bible is. Uh, So if God is, I am. But seriously, one of the key themes, if not the major theme of the entire book of Daniel, is the sovereignty of God in all things. Um, And we kind of reach a climax of that this evening in Daniel chapter 4 that we're going to be looking at. Uh, Tonight we're going to be checking out the account... Uh, of God taking King Nebuchadnezzar's mind and rendering him insane for seven years. Right? So this might not be the most famous Old Testament story, uh, but it's definitely an amazing one worth learning from uh, and, and fairly timely uh, from what I can gather. But this whole narrative is meant to be one that teaches us about the dangers of pride. Right? Pride is something that we don't give much thought to. Generally speaking, we automatically assume I'm not proud, <laughs> right? And we do that because we all accept I'm not perfect, right? And for some reason, we equate uh, I'm not proud with uh, well, I'm not perfect, right? Just admitting that you make like ah, I make some mistakes, so I can't be that proud. But in reality, we, that's not a one for one. Admitting that you make mistakes does not make you humble. Um, right? But I would argue this. I would argue that the American dream that many of us pursue is one wrapped in pride, right? This idea that I can do whatever I want with my life if I just apply myself enough and plan well enough and save enough and make enough good decisions. I can do whatever I please, whatever is good to me. That's the American dream. I uh, once—I forget who the preacher was. Um, Whoever it was, he was better than me. And he said that the doctrine of Americanism is sola bootstrappa. And that made me laugh really hard, right? By your bootstraps alone, you can make it, right? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps as opposed to Sola gratia, right? By grace alone, we get what we get. By grace alone, we have what we have. So I don't have a lot of time to to mess around before we get into this because we're going to be reading the majority of chapter 4 of Daniel. But what I hope that we're going to take away from this passage, passage tonight is a better view of our lives, that we would all understand that we are not the ones in control of our life. That God is sovereign over our future. God is sovereign over us moment to moment. And whatever comes, comes by His hand. I hope that we see that all we have received in this life is from the hand of a gracious God and not by our own efforts. Yes, there's human responsibility wrapped up in that. But you do not have what you have and you are not where you are in life right now because you are so strong. And because you have planned so well. I pray that we would see that God opposes the proud. And why he hates pride. But that indeed, God gives grace to those who humble themselves before his supremacy. And look to him in repentance. Seeking his guidance and leadership and for him to save them. So with that being said, we're going to pray. And then we're going to launch into this text. So let's pray. Father, you're good and you're sovereign. God, thank you for all the people that are here this evening that you directed here. Holy Spirit, please take this week's sermon and do something with it. It's not in our ability to comprehend, it's not in my ability to preach, but it's in your sovereign work that our hearts will be softened and opened to what this text says. So God, please destroy our pride, whether it be spiritual pride or pride in this life, whatever it may be that you would break us and let us see that heaven rules over us and that all we have is a gift from a gracious God. Holy Spirit, point your people to Christ. Point the unbeliever to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a little bit of background. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And by the way, my notes, uh, I wrote Neb because I didn't want to type his name every time, so I'm I'm serious as a heart attack. I might mess around and call him Neb, because I'm going to be glancing down at my notes. So please, that's going to be embarrassing and on the podcast. So I hope I don't do that, but if I do, Neb is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is king of the Babylonian Empire. We have seen him in chapters 1 through 3. This is the last chapter we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar uh, in this series. But Nebuchadnezzar is pagan. He's a godless man. But in him being pagan and worshiping the Babylonian gods, he does indeed recognize that Daniel's god is the most high god. right? But again, he still worships false gods. Not only that, not only is he pagan, but Nebuchadnezzar is a cruel king. Right? He is a tyrant king. He is godless. We saw that last week in the fiery furnace, where he's willing to burn to death the people of God for their refusal to bow down to false gods. What's astounding about King Nebuchadnezzar is that he has seen the living God's work, but remains unchanged by it. Right? And just real quick, that shows you like the human heart is one of stone. Right? That he can see the most high God, Yahweh, rescue three men out of a fiery furnace, and yet remain unchanged. Still stay pagan. That shows you the state of our hearts, apart from the grace of God regenerating us by the work of the Holy Spirit that we're going to get into later. But he's a proud man. Right? Uh, the golden image in chapter 3, uh, many scholars argue, might have been of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Right, The image that he wanted everyone to bow down to. Regardless, he thinks that he is godlike. He is incredibly arrogant. But this is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story. We're going to see verses 1 through 3. is going to tell us as much. That this, this passage in Daniel is actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Madness. Right, but I warn you this, his story is told from a past perspective. All right, so, his point of view while he was still pagan. So, if he sounds pagan, it's because he was, right? It's his point of view that he's writing from. But indeed, this is his conversion story. So, check this out. Verse 1 King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, right? So, this is, this is a decree. This is, this is a writing from him, right? This is a decree to all the people peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion endures from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar starts this thing out. This whole chapter is his decree. Look what God has done for me. This is personal language. Again, this is one of the reasons why I think he was converted by this whole thing. I want you guys to see what God has done. The next seven verses go on to tell us that the king has a dream which he's going to tell us in a minute. The king has a dream. He doesn't understand it, and it scares him to death, right? Because he doesn't understand. He knows that this this has been given to him divinely. He doesn't know what's going on in the dream. And he begins to seek an interpretation from all of his magicians, all of the pagans, and he can't find one, right? Surprise, surprise. Just like in chapter 2 with Daniel interpreting a dream, Nebuchadnezzar goes to Daniel, right? And he begins to tell Daniel what he saw in the dream, picking up in verse 10. a holy one, came down from heaven. That's an angel. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He said, just tell me, man. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. which has come upon the Lord, my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. He'll live outside. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I know that was a lot. But we need to know the whole story.
1: If you notice,
0: one thing was repeated three or four times you will know that the Most High rules. You will know that mankind is nothing before him. Right, so keep that in mind. That is the theme of this whole chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, you will understand this by the time that I'm done with you. All right, so to sum, that up, to sum this whole thing up, because I understand that was a lot, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Right, Big tree, beautiful tree, everything eats from it, everything rests in it and rests under it. And the angel says, chop the tree down, leave the stump. God is going to humble this stump. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He is the stump. God is going to take his mind and humble him. God does it, because if God promises to do something, he does it, whether for better or for worse for the person. And then Nebuchadnezzar learns God's sovereignty and is humbled and converted. Again, he extols and praises God. He learned what God had intended him to learn. So Nebuchadnezzar's problem was pride, right? That's the problem of this whole account. That's kind of what sets the the ball going on this. Nebuchadnezzar is a proud man. He was convinced that he was the greatest, right? That no one on the earth was higher than him, right? Considering he's the king, right? So there's uh, an element of truth to that. He does have a mighty station in the world, right? But he is convinced that he runs everything, and that everything he has and everything that he has accomplished came from his hand by his own might and strength. Verse 30 tells us as much. He says, is, is not this great Babylon, right? That I built by my power and my might, right? To display my glory and my majesty. Right? He is a self-centered, self-glorifying person. Right? So pride. What is Pride. Pride is arrogance. Pride is thinking too highly and too much of yourself. Right, I'll just throw this out there. I know we say human beings are worthless, right? And there's some truth in that. Right? But human beings are made in the image of God. So that's the only worth that we actually have because we're fallen, sinful man. The only worth that I have is that I've been made in God's image. He is worthy. I am not. That's the only way that I have any worth. So I'm not saying that we all need to be self-loathing and think that we have literally no value. But we ought not think of ourselves any higher than I am a sinner with the image of God on me. And that should actually humble us that <laughs> we got to retain that image after the fall. Right, but a proud person thinks too highly. They think above that of themselves. Right? A proud person places confidence in the self rather than in the God who runs the universe. It's actually funny. If you do like a survey of like the proud being mentioned in Scripture, uh, you'll see that they are almost always held in direct contrast to the godly or to the humble or to the righteous. Right? And the righteous are then characterized as those who place their confidence in God and not in themselves. All right, but... Our culture, right? I know I sound like an old man every time I talk about the culture, right? Al Mohler, the Cultural Revolution, right? You guys should really check out The Briefing by Al Mohler. That's a great podcast. Anyway, sorry, rabbit hole, rabbit trail. Um, Rabbit hole, I'm going to fall. Right? Um, But our culture is completely fueled by pride, right? Like just think of the music that comes on the radio. I was actually at my mom's house, and I was a little bit embarrassed because T-Pain's All I Do Is Win came on, the ra- like came on in her house, and I was like, Mom, why? Like, why did this happen? Because um, Alexa is possessed by the devil and just plays music whenever she feels like apparently. Um, right? But, like, think about songs like, you know, All I Do Is Win, things like that. Like, I, I'm the greatest. That's, that's a constant theme. Right? But our culture tells us consistently, you are in charge of your life. And your destiny is in your hands. We are told every day, all throughout the school system, all over the place, and ads, everything else, that if you work hard enough and plan well enough and make good enough decisions that you can be whatever you want to be, period. And don't let anyone or anything get in your way, railroad people if you have to, slit a couple throats if necessary, but you can get it. You can do it if you want it. A constant theme that rings throughout our lives is you are great. You are awesome. And you can do it on your own. It's your life, your rules. Is, like Facebook inspirational quotes, like they're the bane of my existence. But is that not like all that you see on there? And by the way, like I saw uh, an article one time. that said it's never the successful people that are posting that stuff on Facebook. Um, yeah, sorry, that's mean, but it made me laugh. Um, Right, but but the, seriously, that's all like the inspirational quote crap that you see on Facebook all the time. Is you can do it. You're strong enough. You're good enough. You're great enough. I think that there's a poem. Some of us have probably read this in school. Invictus, or Invictus. I don't know how you pronounce it. it sounds Latin. By William Henley, that I think really sums up what our culture believes. It's the last stanza of that poem. It says it matters not how straight. It matters not how straight the gate. How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Tell me that's not our culture. And by the way, that's probably the most godless poem I've ever read in my life. The whole thing is about, my head will remain unbowed. I will be humbled by nothing because I run my life. And we all kind of like that. (laughs) Seriously, like, I read that and I was like, my flesh was like, ooh, yeah. Right? Like, that's immediately what I thought. And we kind of accept that as fact, that I run my life. And we don't even really view it as proud. And we believers have a tendency to buy into this kind of thinking, that we can do anything, that we are in control, that life is essentially about building our own kingdom, much like Nebuchadnezzar thought about his own life. And in thinking like that, we devote our lives to our own wills and plans without much of a thought toward God whatsoever. We try to assert autonomy claim our independence from God. And because of this, we live with dissatisfied hearts. We live in a constant pursuit of more and more and more of what we want. Because why, if I'm running my life, am I not satisfied? And then, we blow up and get angry whenever our kingdom isn't panning out the way that we wanted. Because we're trying desperately to keep control. The more things don't go our way, the harder we try to grip. But instead of recognizing the sovereignty of God and the grace of God overruling our lives, we labor under the delusion that we run things. That is pride. We're even susceptible to spiritual pride. or Self-righteousness. Literally trying to make the self righteous by your own efforts. And this is, and I know that this, I'm not the only person that's felt this way because I'm not the only sinner in the room, right? Where we think that God must think that we are great because comparatively we are not as bad as other people. God must really think that I'm something. Because I didn't sin in this one area, notwithstanding the 150 other areas that I did sin in today. Or, God must think highly of me because of my obedience. I read my Bible. I tied this week. I went to church a couple of times. I stopped some external sinful action, even though my heart remained unchanged. But my obedience, at least externally, is good. God must really think something of me. And in those times when we think highly of our own spiritual efforts, we stop focusing on Christ as our righteousness. And we begin to rely on ourselves. And that antichrist. anti-Christ. That is blasphemy. And we do that because somehow we believe stupidly, I can do this. Like, I needed Jesus to get my foot in the door, right? But now I can handle this. And when we do that, we lose sight of what we are. We lose sight of the fact that we're sinners, and that it's Christ's righteousness alone that saves us. And when we begin to look inwardly instead of upwardly towards Christ, we become like the Pharisees. Period. But in our text, in our text, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He destroyed that guy's pride. Just broke him in half. But God didn't do it arbitrarily, right? because God is not an arbitrary God. He did it in order to teach the king something. Right? Again, he didn't just do it to prove that he is sovereign. Right? He doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. Right? He doesn't do anything just for the sake of proving himself. He going to prove to, would you prove yourself to an ant? Right? Like he doesn't have to do it that way. He's trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar something. And here's what I think he's trying to teach. Verse 17 makes it clear, I think. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So God did this to teach him that He rules the kingdom of men. He rules this world. He gives the kingdom to whom He will. Everything is a grace. And thirdly, He sets over the kingdom, the humble. Puts humble people over the kingdom. So let's just look at those things, All right? So the most high rules the kingdom of men. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that he did not control anything. Not a single solitary thing. Though he was king, though he was powerful, he was powerless compared to the sovereign God of the universe. The whole world is accounted as nothing before God, like Stephen opened us up with out of Isaiah 40, I believe. He weighs the nations like their are dust on a scale, This is God. Nebuchadnezzar is nothing compared to him. God took his mind, right? He took his mental health from him. He took his kingdom from him. He took his wealth, his fame, his power from him. And he did it in an instant, instantaneously. While the words of boasting and pride were still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, God robbed him of all of it. Rather, God didn't rob it from him. God took it back as it was his to begin with. But clearly, Nebuchadnezzar had no control over anything. This is an extreme example of what is true for every single person here. You don't control your future. You don't control anything. I don't know what's going to happen 30 seconds from now. I, I literally could fall over dead from a heart attack. I don't know if that's not going to happen. My mom always told me this, and I always appreciated this. And it's Mother's Day, so I thought this was, like, appropriate. It, she's not over there. I saw y'all looking. She's not there. Um <laughs> She's downstairs teaching the children because she is a saint. Um, My mom always told me, David, your life can change with a phone call. Is that not true? A phone call could tell me that my wife is dead. A phone call could tell me that my house is on fire. A phone call could tell me that I don't have a job anymore. A phone call could tell me that our nation is at war. A lot of things. Our life can change with a phone call. For example, none of us foresaw two weeks ago, or last week, I can't remember, at, a, at the Bible study that we were having downstairs, that Stephen Witt was going to bust his mouth on a, on a table and bend his teeth inward. Thank God he's cool. Like, he's fine. None of us saw that coming. Like, none of us had any clue that that was going to happen. And yet, I guarantee you, for Matt and Anna, his parents, immediately, panic. I'm not in control of this. What do we do? We've got to try to fix this. No one saw that kind of thing coming. We don't control our future. We don't control minute to minute. We don't know what's going to happen. But we try to hold on to the illusion of control by overplanning. Right? Trying to guard ourselves against every possible thing that could happen. Or, if you're like me, I struggle with this, by saving money greedily. Instead of recognizing, I have more than I need. I can be, I, no, it's, it's I, I want this. Um, and what we 're doing is we 're trying to make ourselves as secure as possible in case god's plan contradicts my plan. that 's really what we 're doing. we 're trying to hold on to some kind of illusion of control. Instead of trusting god 's good, sovereign will, we try to plan and protect ourselves from his plan. And we do that as if he weren't trustworthy or good, as if his plan has ever done wrong to his people ever. How ungodly is that kind of a mentality? James actually tells us to humble ourselves before God's sovereign rule and to relinquish control. He says this in chapter 4 of his letter. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. God is the one in control. And our worrying and anxiety and trying to hold the reins over our lives is an insult to His sovereignty. It's the height of arrogance. We also said that God was teaching Nebuchadnezzar that He gives the kingdom to whom He will. So we covered He's not in control of His life. But in his pride, Nebuchadnezzar thought that everything he had and that he had accomplished was by his own strength. But again, God says, I give kingdoms to whom I will. Like, what a blow to our pride and our autonomy that God says, no, dude, like, I give you everything. The only reason that Nebuchadnezzar was king, the only reason Nebuchadnezzar had been successful in military campaigns, the only reason he was wealthy, the whole nine yards was because God had given it to him. Now we often, we often look at our jobs and our degrees and our homes and our cars and our families and our reputations and think, look what I have done with my life. That is so foolish. Look what I have done. The only reason that you have what you do and you are able to do what you do is by the grace of God. He gave you the ability to work. He gave you the mental capacity to study. If you have a home because you had to put a down payment on the home, because I'm guessing you didn't buy it cash. And if you did buy it cash, this is true. Regardless, God kept you from hardship so you could save money, so you could get this. Everything. Like, consider where you're at in your life, and kick the can back and see just how many things had to line up perfectly in order to get you where you are. The loan could have not been approved. The person could have picked someone else during the hiring process. You could have been in a car accident and had your mental capabilities like taken from you. Not been able to go to school and get your degree. Just so many things had to perfectly line up for every single one of us to be wherever we're at in our lives, regardless if it doesn't seem that great now or if you seem like you're on top of the world. So, so many things that, we, that were beyond our control had to line up. The family that you have, did you pick them? God knows we don't pick our families, right? He lined all of this up for us. Everything that we have, you can trace it back to an external factor beyond your control. It comes from God. God is the primary cause. And I think that when we see that every single thing that we are and have is a gift from the hand of a loving father, we will stand in awe of grace. That I'm a sinner and he has given me this. And we'll stand in awe of grace instead of puffing ourselves up with this false notion that we got it because we are so great and smart. I know some of you probably don't like this. Just like no one liked it whenever Barack Obama told business owners, like, yeah, you didn't get here by yourself. And I was like, he doesn't mean that theologically, but he's right. (laughs) Right? I remember thinking that whenever I saw him say it on the news like a few years back and everyone was mad at him like, nah, it's true. God gave them the business. God gave them everything that they needed on that. We don't like this idea because we want to think that we accomplished what we have instead of standing in awe of grace. And also, to side note, um, we're going to realize that what we have doesn't really belong to us if we understand it was given by God. That It was given to us to serve his kingdom. But that's another sermon for another day. But thirdly, God taught Nebuchadnezzar that he opposes the proud, but he gives the kingdom to those who humble themselves before him. God opposed Nebuchadnezzar, clearly. He took everything from him because of his proud rebellion against God and him asserting his autonomy and independence from God. Now this concept that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble is repeated multiple times in the Bible. It's from just me off the top of my head. Once in Proverbs, once in James, once in 1 Peter, right? So it's repeated in both Testaments. God wants us to clearly get our heads around this. That he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But why? I like to ask questions when I read the Bible. Right? Why? Why is God actively working against the proud, God works against the proud actively because pride actively seeks to dethrone God. Pride is self glorifying. And God is the only supreme thing in the universe worthy of glory. Pride touts its achievements before God. This is why God despises pride, because He actually sees us as what we are, that we're we're sinners. How dare we come to Him beating our chest, saying that we are anything before Him, or trying to glorify ourselves instead of Him. He sees us rightly, and we have a blind eye on our pride. He hates pride for that reason. Pride rejects the sovereignty and supremacy of the true God and attempts to place the individual who is proud in God's rightful place as the center of the universe. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, Paul says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. But opposed to this, pride says, Everything is for me and my will and my plan and my glory and my kingdom. Pride is, in essence, giving ourselves first place and thinking of ourselves only. When in reality, only God deserves that position of prominence in our lives. God hates pride because pride doesn't recognize that God rules and that He reigns over us and that we are subject to Him and His graces. I would actually make the argument that pride is the root of all sin. But we think that we're higher in our station in life than we actually are and therefore feel that we have the ability to oppose God right, rightfully. I think all sin can be traced back to pride. Oh yeah, and if you're curious because uh, I know how I, how I thought when, when I was an atheist. Um, God isn't proud. Because right? it's like, well, why does God get to say that he's the like center of everything and we're not? Um, if pride is thinking higher of yourself than you actually are, it is literally impossible for God to be proud then because um, there is nothing higher. He can think as highly of himself as he pleases, and all throughout the Bible, he does. Right? He thinks very highly of himself, so we ought to do the same. It's actually right and fitting and moral that God would place himself above all things and demand to be first in our lives. It would be immoral for God to place himself under anything. That's why the first commandment says, no gods but me. But I think that there's a lot of spiritual truth in this account. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, hear me on this, he was given the mind of a beast in our text, And I think that's a definite spiritual reality. Hear me on this and just really reflect on your own life. In our pride, we are nothing more than beasts. We are nothing more than beasts robbed of reason in the midst of our pride. Why do I say that? Because we don't see ourselves rightly. We can't reason out that we are sinners. I would make this argument. The proud man is not really a human being. He still retains the image of God. I'm not saying that. But the proud man is not living in pursuit of God's glory like he was created to do. He's not even living out what it means to be human. Because he's living for himself. The proud lack the ability to reason within reality and see God as supreme and see ourselves as sinners. So they are beasts. We are beasts when we're proud. But what's worse than that is the fact that God not only temporally and, and in this life opposes the proud God spiritually opposes us in our pride please hear me because this, this broke me a little bit we are set as enemies against God in our pride in our pride we become enemies of God and militate ourselves against him and his sovereignty when we live that kind of a life Pride will spiritually destroy you. Proud people go to hell. And they go to hell because as long as a person thinks highly of themselves, they're never going to see their sin. They're never going to see their true stance before God. And if they never see their sin, they never see their standing before God, then they will never in their life seek a Savior in Jesus Christ. Because they don't think they need one. The proud person looks at their own moral accomplishments and achievements and thinks that those things are good enough to merit their standing before God. They don't have reason enough to see that God demands perfect righteousness from them and that they don't have it. Not only that, but whenever we arrogantly think that I am the captain of my soul and I am the master of my fate, if we think that, we will never be willing to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Jesus. Because in submitting to Christ as Lord and Savior, we have to give over all control to Him and say, You are the author and perfecter of my faith. In our natural state, no human being is able to humble themselves before the mercy of God. In our natural state, we are proud. None of us will seek salvation from Christ. So, what all proud people, which is to say, all people, Because we all have pride lingering in some corner of our hearts. What all people need is to be humbled by God. Because only then will we seek mercy. But how does a proud sinner humble themselves before God? How does that happen? How does a proud person become willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ if we are all naturally proud and don't seek God? Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not please Him. Indeed, it cannot. Romans chapter 3 says, No one seeks God. No one is righteous. They have no fear of God before their eyes. How is a person with this kind of a mentality, this kind of pride, to submit themselves to God humbly? Grace. Grace is like always the answer, by the way. That's like the Sunday school answer to the Bible on almost everything. Grace. Is how a sinner becomes humbled. God's grace in humbling Nebuchadnezzar is the thread of this whole story. As much as we see the wrath and judgment of God against Nebuchadnezzar, verses 1 through 3 in the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar says, Look at what God has done for me. He's celebrating. Look what He did for me. He humbled me and brought me to repentance. God brings us to our knees. By the work of the Holy Spirit. God Himself must bring sinners to their knees. And He doesn't always do this by taking things from us, although we see there is precedent for that. But it's the Spirit of God working in our hearts as we hear God's Word proclaimed that causes us to see that we are weak, that causes us to see that we are insufficient, that apart from God we can do nothing. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to see that we are vile sinners, deserving of God's eternal hatred because of our pride. It's the Spirit that causes us to see ourselves truly, that causes us to to, to fear God, to see that we don't measure up to His standard, to allow us to hate ourselves for the beasts that we have been our whole lives. This is supernatural. It can't be explained. The Spirit does as He wills. But it's the Spirit that makes us willing to submit to the Lord Jesus. It is not in us. It's only in Him. Like we're going to sing in a minute, if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Because the Spirit's the one who had to humble us. So apart from the Spirit giving us eyes to see things rightly and a heart willing to seek mercy, hear me, we will all remain proud and damned throughout eternity apart from His work. This is why you hear me say this phrase a lot whenever I pray. Sovereign grace. Man cannot humble himself apart from grace. And the Spirit... Like Jesus says in John 3, he does what he wants. He goes to whom he will. This happens apart from us by the will of God. This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and I'll show you from the text. Verse 34 it says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who, who lives forever. So, check this out. At the end of days, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And then my reason returned to me. I'm sure as an animal, he lifted his eyes to heaven multiple times when he heard thunder, when it began to rain, right? Or if like the clouds broke. I'm sure he looked up more than once, right? I doubt he looked down at the ground for seven years. I'm sure he looked up. I think this is Nebuchadnezzar looking up in repentance. Because it says that this punishment is going to endure on Nebuchadnezzar until he knows that God rules, So he looks up in repentance, saw himself rightly, and was restored. But here's the question. How could he, with the mind of an animal, look up in repentance? Regeneration. Regeneration. The work of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God is how he, with the mind of an animal, could look up in repentance. And receive the rest of his reason back. And truth be told, all of us in our sinful state have the minds of beasts. And there's no way that we can look up in repentance apart from the work of God. So looking at everything together, all three of these things that he was taught, we see how stupid that pride is and how sovereign that God is. Hear me on this. You don't control your life. God does. Your future is in His hands. Everything that you have has come by grace from God to you. And your salvation itself comes from the work of Christ, uh, obeying the law on your behalf and suffering and dying on your behalf, and the sovereign grace of the Holy Spirit working in you that drew you to Christ. Everything. God controls everything. He reigns. He controls. We are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. We are not Independent, We are not autonomous. All is of grace because all is of God. You and I need Him in every single aspect of our lives from moment to moment. And God wants us to see that reality. He desires our humility and He wants us to come to Him as children, acknowledging that we can't do anything on our own. Jesus Christ repeats this concept in Matthew chapter 5, the most important sermon Jesus ever preached. The opening line, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God says He sets over the kingdom the lowliest of men, is what He told Nebuchadnezzar. There's a truth there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, that we are nothing before God, that God is all, and that we need mercy. Jesus Christ is telling us in this verse that when we let go of our pride and see ourselves as weak and needy sinners and come to God for mercy, then we receive the kingdom because He sets over the kingdom the lowliest of men. Jesus Christ directs us to Himself. He tells us to do, like Nebuchadnezzar, just to look up to him in repentance and receive our reason, to recognize his lordship and submit to his reign and to humble ourselves. Here in this, there's a chain of reasoning. Humility results in trusting the sovereign God. That's faith. Faith results in salvation. That's why God gives grace to the humble. So, in conclusion, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your foolish pride, whether it be spiritual pride where you've begun to think that God must think something of you because of your obedience, or whether it be temporal pride where you look and you say, Look at this kingdom that I have built by my own smarts. Humble yourselves before God and and look to Christ. Receive your mind. See yourself rightly. And know that though you are not in control, A good God who loves you and is gracious to you is in control. Let your hearts be filled with gratitude as you consider the gifts that you have received from His hand, from your your life, to your job, to your salvation, everything in between. And daily humble yourselves before the Savior. And know that apart from His grace, we are nothing but indeed we have been recipients of that grace. Let's pray. Father, the world is accounted as nothing before you. God, help us to count ourselves the same, to see that we are dust on a scale before you. God, let us not boast in any kind of pride, but to see that we wouldn't even know you if you had not known us first in eternity past. Help us to see your hand at work in everything. Help us to trust you and humble ourselves to you and submit to the lordship of your son. Holy Spirit, please do a work of sovereign grace in our lives, to humble us before God, whether we're believers or unbelievers. Please do something. Do something in us. Take these words that we've read from your word and let them crush us. Wound us so that you might heal us. We praise you and we thank you for being so merciful to sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.